Welcome to the Pain of Scale, the Notion Podcast. And hello, everyone. We're back. How are you, Stephen, today? I'm very good, Paul. Thank you. And you? Oh, very, very good. And I'm very excited for the guest we're having today. Can you introduce him? Sitting next to me is Joss White. Joss is one of the founding partners at Notion Capital. He was also the founder of a company called Message Labs and two mm -hmm. other enterprise technology businesses that he co-founded and wow. successfully exited. And you know, Message Labs, as many people will know, was an extraordinary success that grew rapidly from its launch date in 2002 when it was acquired by Symantec for over 700 million in 2008. Wow more than 150 million in revs and at that point i think it was the second largest SaaS company in the world behind salesforce oh so, i uh, didn't know that wow that's quite a yeah, feedback so, yeah pleased to have joss with me joss. hi joss good to be here morning paul <laughs> morning and maybe for the the context of the audience Stephen, can you because we do that every time but can you again let the audience know why we have joss with us today and what will be the theme of this episode you know within this podcast series the pain of scale we look at nine key challenges that we see founders of venture-backed technology companies need to address. And one of the most critical for them is fundraising. You know, venture capital is the fuel of their growth. And for the founder, the ability to raise capital successfully through their startup, grow up and scale up journey is, is a critical success factor. And the reason I wanted Joss to come along is obviously he's been there as an entrepreneur and, and gone through that journey himself. And then for the last 10 years has been investing in, well, probably more than 10 years, actually, um, has been investing in technology companies personally and then at, within Notion as well. And so I think has a, you know, a really high level of understanding of the challenge that it takes. Did you have to fundraise a lot for Message Labs, Joss? We actually only raised one round of funding for Message Labs. We got into the market at the right time. So we raised money towards the end of 2000 uh -oh. before the, uh, the, the dot-com crash. And message apps had kind of been incubated within Star, the internet provider that I co-founded with my brother in the mid-90s. So the business was only about 10 months old when we raised, but it felt like it was more established than that because it had been kind of incubated within Star. Oh, I see. But we raised about $40 million dollars from US investors, and we kind of got in at the right time and never raised any more money. We raised some debt funding, but we never raised any more money. We did have the wilderness years of suddenly message apps going from its artificial valuation when we raised money of about $100 million, which was difficult to justify, to be honest, but it was a sign of the times, to suddenly you know, being worth about a tenth of that probably for several years and having some fairly frustrated, demoralized investors around the table wondering what the <laughs> done um, but we managed to get through that and we learned quite a lot from that i think and uh yeah you know built a lot of value into the business and since then you've also been an angel investor yourself yes yeah so i, I moved to to new york with message apps in 2002 to run our us operation and i didn't do any investing while i was with message apps just didn't feel like i had the time or, or the money actually but when we exited the business in 2008 from about 2009 I did some angel investing, mainly into New York startups, because that was where my connections were, where my network was. So we actually started Notion in 2009 as well. But because I was living in New York, 
I was probably giving, you know, two thirds of my time to Notion, but then I was doing angel investing as well within the US and mainly within the, the New York market. Always in SaaS business companies? or was- No, I actually, um, it, it was earlier, uh, kind of, you know, angel seed investing. And I think because Notion, quite rightly, has always been focused on SaaS because that's our backgrounds. With my own investing, I invested in all kinds of things. So I invested in consumer models. I invested in a, in a film project and all kinds of things. So it was much, much more instinctive and a lot less strategic, I think would be a polite way of putting it. And yeah, you know, I've had, had a couple of exits from them. And there's, there's a few doing very well. So, you know, it's, it was interesting to kind of have to do a bit of both. So, you know, Justin and I have spoken about this numerous times. You know, when you think about the fundamental role of the, the VC-backed tech founder, there's only really a few things that, that we really say front of mind you really need to focus on. Establishing a, a really clear vision and strategy for the business, building an extraordinary team and making sure you've got the resources to allow that team to execute on the vision. Does that resonate with you and the, and the companies you invest in? Yeah, I think that that's the role of the CEO, really. And I talk about that quite a lot. And I think that founders and CEOs, particularly less experienced ones, can complicate their role and get involved in things that maybe they shouldn't be getting involved in. So I think they've defined the vision and the strategy, as Stephen said, get the right people in the right places and not run out of money. I'm really not sure that you should be doing very much else. Certainly not in an early stage startup, venture-backed startup. There's always like big projects and stuff that you want to stay involved with. But I think the tendency is to try and do too much, get involved in too much detail, rather than, you know, the simplicity of, oh, let's just concentrate on those three things. Because if I do those three things well, then it's likely that this company is going to be successful. So I'm always urging founders, CEOs to kind of think about that simplicity more. And obviously, one of those three things is is don't run out of money, unless you're one of those very rare startups, which becomes cash generative very early on. And we haven't seen too many of those. So normally to grow rapidly, you have to invest in that and you have to raise money. And so, yeah, you know, fundraising, I think from a company's founding is a top priority for a founder. So let's put that in the context of the kind of the the journey, the extraordinary journey these founders go on. So we talk about it in terms of a theme we've come back to over and over again within the podcast series, this kind of startup Zero to five million in revenues. I'm figuring out, am I solving a problem worth solving? I'm, I'm establishing the fundamentals. And that may well be the seed round and the series A. Then we go into the kind of grow up phase, which is five million, maybe to 25 million. So I've proven the problem's worth solving. Now I'm building a business to solve that problem and, and really create repeatability and predictability. And that might be the, the B and the C round. And then I get to 25, 30, 40, 50 million. And it's all about the real scale up, getting really big, really fast. So when you think about the fundamental differences of the fundraising challenge in those three life stages, how would you characterize the, the challenge that the CEO needs to get around? At the seed stage, it's more simple because there isn't a lot of commercial progress. You want to satisfy yourself that the founder or founders have got a really good idea and they can articulate that idea and that they seem to have the right stuff, the right characteristics in order to actually execute on that idea. So I think it's more of a instinctive type of decision. You're really backing the founders and the scale of their thinking and the, the, the size of their idea. So I guess, you know, they've got the vision think, well, we need the resources to fulfill that vision. That's a quick summary of a seed round. I think with Series A, 
there is commercial progress. So there is probably at least one year of a full sort of financial plan that they've been through and maybe multiple years. So you can start to see their level of performance and their level of growth. And you can start to see the actual numbers coming through in the metrics. You can start to see whether the company's actually reached product market fit and to what extent they reach product market fit, because often it's not a perfect science defining product market fit. At series A stage, you're trying to get comfortable that it's not just about the founders and maybe the early signs of building a team, but they've got some formation, some early signs of product market fit, and they're raising the money to actually scale that product market fit more widely and more deeply into the market or into a wider market segment. And then I think Series B and ongoing becomes more about getting the right people in the right places. The founder or founders have proved that they can actually build a team that's capable of taking the company forward, that has some experience and some success in their past, and that you're starting to build a wider and more capable team, but you're also starting to build the discipline of operationalizing the business. And to me, a large part of operationalizing the business is to be able to build a plan that fits together, that is a stepping stone towards the company's vision, but build a plan and report against your performance against that plan and actually deliver on that plan. I was wondering how many companies you've had pitch you for investment in that nine-year period. I don't know. That's a good question. It's probably about 100 a year. Get into like a full face-to-face presentation. So more than that, if you're counting calls. I mean, you must have learned so much. Have you changed your thinking about those stages quite a lot over those thousand companies you've seen? I'm definitely very founder orientated. So I think I've sort of doubled down on that. So I believe that the founder has to be an exceptional person and they have to have certain sort of attributes like they have to have amazing sort of scale of their thinking. They have to be able to articulate their their vision in a clear and compelling way. You want them to have the kind of fire burning or the sort of chip on their shoulder in terms of sort of determination to be successful and prove people wrong. Sort of balance between what I call conviction and coachability. So you want them to have a lot of conviction about what they're doing, but at the same time, they need to be prepared to listen to certain people or listen to certain inputs and adapt their way of thinking along the way. So you don't you don't want all conviction because then they're going to drive off a cliff at 100 miles an hour, but you don't want all coachability because then the idea gets compromised and they're not going to have a big enough idea. They're going to get talked down to a kind of safer place. And I think just the kind of the intellectual capability to actually learn from mistakes and to think about the world slightly differently. So I, I really like founders we had a insider to the pain and an outsider to the market. So I think I've had a lot of my best success with that. So founders who have actually personally experienced the pain of what they're trying to solve. So they have firsthand knowledge and understanding of the pain. That's where the genesis of the idea comes from. But they're an outsider to the market. So if you're an outsider to the market, I think you can think more fundamentally about a new solution. Whereas if you're in the market, then you tend to think about things in more kind of iterative steps. So I think I've definitely become more focused on the founder. I think beyond seed, there's a lot to be said for really obsessing about your product as well. So you think about your product in a customer-centric way and very, very regularly. So you're actually constantly thinking about it, constantly talking to customers, talking to potential customers. 
you kind of obsess about the the details of the product as well as the overall strategy because I think the best founders tend to do that as well. And then as, as it gets further into the later stages, one thing that I think is sort of under analyzed probably is just the ability to hit a plan. So companies will always have budgets and they'll always have fundraising presentations. They'll have financial plans. So it's it's an interesting thing to actually either keep the presentation for when they, when they last pitch to you or ask to see financial plans or board packs. Because I think as you start to scale, a company's ability to plan and hit its plan is so fundamental to its success. And then just the ability to to build a really strong team. So you haven't got too big an ego where you think that all paths should lead to you or that you should be doing more than is scalable to do or more than you're capable of doing. The self-awareness to build a team, the empathy to build a team, giving your team members freedom to express themselves and not interfering too much, kind of taking some risks. And I think you often see that in the the quality of the team that you build, but also the way that people are retained and the way that they talk about the founders. What's really interesting about this is you, you're giving some really good insights, hopefully, to people who are coming to raise money from you, but also pitching to other VCs. And I wonder whether we could bring it, make it a little bit more kind of tangible for people. So, so you've had a, well over a thousand companies pitched to you, yeah. and you've probably invested in, well, at, at Notion, 15? About 15, yeah. Yeah. And personally? Probably about the same. Yeah, 15. Yeah, so 30 out of a 1,000, 3%. I wonder whether you can draw on some observations from the 3% and the 97%. Uh, you know, what if you think about a seed investment you did make that really stands out, that, that really kind of talks to that vision, who would that be? And what was it that really kind of caught your attention? Well, I think one would be Bryn Kennedy at Move Guides, where we led the seed round into Move Guides, which is now called Topia. Bryn had certainly lived through the pain. She was a former investment banker. She worked all over the world. So she'd lived through the pain of being moved around and, and how organizations move their people around and how it's a very manual process. And you're basically just given some cash and just told to get on with it and you land in a new city and you know you don't know what the hell's going on it's just a very very painful complicated process but for the organization as well it just means that your employees you know it's going to take much longer for them to be up to speed in their new location or because it's seen as such a painful process they're going to decide not to move either the organization is going to decide not to move the people so i think Bryn's idea to use a digital platform to help organizations move their people around the world to manage that whole process, to manage the checklist that you need to go through, to manage the information about the city they're moving to, to manage the uh, recommendation of vendors, bank accounts, to manage the whole payments process in multiple currencies. And also for the, for the organization itself to see everybody that's moving and be able to plan and forecast and, and sort of manage the full kind of, you know, everybody that's actually moving in any, in any capacity across the organization. I thought that that was a very compelling vision and it was a market that hadn't really felt like a kind of new frontier for tech. Felt like Bryn was, you know, really capable of defining that category and leading that category. And um, so I think that's definitely one that kind of took hold on me quite early. What about a a Series A? The last investment I made was in a business called Futurely, which was actually, had been talking about raising money, hadn't actually raised any money. It was a bootstrap business based in Brighton amazing female founder called Hannah Dawson seems to be talking about all about my female founders. Definitely, we've got some very strong female founders in national portfolio. And they've got to multiple millions of revenue. The business was actually profitable. 
and they hadn't raised any money. So to me, to have got that far in a bootstrap way says a lot about Hannah and her team, says a lot about the company. And it feels like having been through that learning curve and, and performed so well without funding that it was a business that potentially could be really kind of turbocharged with funding. So futurely, their vision is that most data and their main data sources, are the accounting software that a business uses, they believe that the data that you have in your accounting system is all backwards facing. Their product takes that data and makes it forward facing. So they're trying to kind of democratize business intelligence. Hannah would say it's sort of much broader than that, but that's just a good way to think about it in a way that you can actually forecast and plan and predict what's going to happen, what's around the corner. So you can make much, much more informed decisions as an SMB business owner about the future, about, about your future planning. So I thought that that was very compelling, the way they had integrated with the accounting systems like Zero and QuickBooks and Sage. And they were making those systems so much more intelligent in the way that their product worked. Seemed like the, uh, the right strategy to have. That was definitely an exciting one as well. I was just wondering about the 97%. Presumably there's a few in there where you didn't see what the potential was that you really kind of feel like you, you, you missed out on. And then I wonder if there's some observations you've got of, of some of the others. They really just didn't encapsulate their story in a way. And what kind of advice you might give to founders? Often, and this is not always right, but I think often a company will let itself down if the founder or the group of founders can't represent all the key areas of the business. And you often see this if there's a single founder, unless you're an exceptional founder and you can kind of cover all these bases, which some people can't. Thinking back on it, you see a founder that can't represent the sort of supply side and the demand side, and therefore maybe you don't get the full picture and you don't believe that they can do it on their own. And so I'm, I'm a big believer in founders that kind of complement each other well. And I don't think you necessarily need more than just someone who's more demand side, sort of sales side, and someone's more supply side, sort of product tech. But I think you probably need both as founders or very early on. Otherwise, I think often the story is not going to be expressed in a complete way. That's one thing. Sometimes, particularly more technical founders, I think, can get lost in the technology a little bit rather than actually think about the business problems they're trying to solve and the benefits of what they're doing. You know, the famous analogy of the Black & Decker CEO saying, we, we don't make 12-inch drills, we make 12-inch holes. So it's like the outcome and the, the, the sort of benefit, the value proposition rather than just the technology. So I think sometimes companies don't think about that enough in the context of the pain in the market and the size of the market. So the, the technology seems a bit unapplied or isolated in some way. But the other one is just obvious that everyone says, but it, it actually happens an awful lot is just, I just don't understand it. And if I don't understand it, then the market's not going to understand it. You know, you need to be able to articulate what you do in just a few minutes. You've got to grab people quite early on. And so if you come out of the meeting trying to sort of scratch your head a little bit about, well, it seemed quite interesting, but could I now play that back to my team or to someone else? And if I can't, that's a worry for me because I think that then other people are going to have the same experience. That's a really interesting point. And actually something I've spoken to quite a few founders about is they have to give you enough information to be able to tell your partners about that firm and say why you're so excited about it. Mm. And I think people don't realize the dynamic that, that goes on within a venture firm. So I suppose how can the founders do a better job? And it, it's not just me going back to my team, but it's actually a potential decision maker going back to his budget holder. You know, if you can't arm people with the right kind of messaging and the right kind of clarity, 
then often the messaging won't spread, the, the information won't spread in a way that you want it to because it's not fluent and it's not easily understandable. So often you're going to lead to kind of dead ends in this kind of message chain that you're trying to create because there's always a chain. It's not, you know, very rarely is a person, the single decision maker, the single budget holder, the single, you know. So to think about that and to have the right kind of story that people can then forward on, I think is really important. And yeah, it, to me, it's a real red flag. And it's hard because it's the whole thing about the famous Winston Churchill quote, I think, when he says, I'm sorry, I'm going to give you my 40-minute speech because I didn't have time to write my 15-minute one. You know, getting things down to a really clear and concise story is really hard, but I think it's so important. And then out of the um, 97% you didn't invest in, any particular ones that you regret missing out on? There's always lots, I think, that either we compete for or we're not prepared to pay the price that other investors are paying or we just turn down and then they go on to flourish. There's a few. There's a company called Grapeshot, which was an ad tech proposition. So they were analyzing content on websites to better focus and better target digital advertising based on the content of the website. And they had all kinds of AI and natural language processing to enable them to do that more effectively than anyone else. They were sold to Oracle for 300 million or something. Then it's gone public, but I think it was about that. I was already a little bit negative towards ad tech just because I find it a very, very difficult market to invest in because it's controlled by a few companies and there's smaller margins. It's not really in tune with our SaaS focus. But also I just felt that it's such a busy market and that their technology was just more of a kind of feature rather than something upon which you could build a whole company. But I think that the learning is they actually had a different way of approaching a complicated problem. The team came from Cambridge and they were a very, very smart team, lots of PhDs. And I'm not sure I fully appreciated that they were different to the hundreds of other similar types of ad tech propositions that I've seen. That was one. Another one is Mapillary, which we looked at, which we got very, very close to. So they're based in Malmo in Sweden. Really, really smart CEO, really, really smart team. And they are building a crowdsourced version of Google Street View. They can take any pictures from any device, from any source, and they can basically stitch it together in a very, very clever way to make complete pictures of streets or any kind of facilities or whatever it is that you want to monitor or manage. And I think the challenge with that was that the valuation got quite high relative that their commercial progress was very, very limited. But I think that when there's a deeper tech proposition, you've got to try and value it strategically as well as commercially because you've got to try and value the team and the tech and how valuable that could be to a larger company as well as the commercial progress because generally deep tech will take longer to commercialize but also in itself is more valuable so i think you need to find a way with a really smart team and deeper tech type of startups to value them not just based on the commercial progress, but based on their strategic value. And I'm not sure that we did that fully with Mapillary. It's one that I like to think about. I know you think about these things a lot. And I wonder whether that experience helped you to, to get your head around investing in 5AI. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and, and I think not just for me, but as a firm, you know, we started out just investing in SaaS companies because that was our background with message apps. And then I think we realized that every VC, every investor was moving into the SaaS categories it was no longer such a differentiation just to be investing in SaaS but also the market often we were seeing 
you know, SaaS as a platform, but SaaS plus payments or SaaS plus a third-party marketplace or increasingly hardware software models where some of the compute capacity is actually now coming back away from the cloud towards IoT and new connected platforms like cars. So I think more broadly, it made us think in Notion, well, we definitely want to focus on the enterprise. We want to focus on B2B, but the market is evolving. So we still have SaaS at our core in terms of, you know, the SaaS is where our roots are and we still invest very, very heavily behind SaaS. But we also, we're also interested in how SaaS can be a platform for marketplaces and payments. And we're interested in hardware, software models, which I think often is where the deeper tech propositions will be within that, within that category. So with that in mind, I got introduced to 5AI probably in about 2015. So we were just starting to think about how we're going to sort of evolve our focus away from SaaS. Stan Boland, who I got introduced to, who's a remarkable founder who's had a lot of success in the past, who's built, you know, almost a billion dollars of value, he's had two or three major exits, he's actually um, ex-ARM, he was a senior executive in, in ARM prior to that. So one of the best known enterprise CEOs, enterprise founders in the UK, in, in Europe. So I was really interested to hear what he was doing and his vision, which I think has been more and more crystallized over the years, was to build an autonomous driving company out of Europe and be the European leader. And I think that, yeah, if we hadn't started to evolve our messaging away from SaaS, and that would have felt like that company was just not in our sights, was not in our focus. But I think it still fits some of our criteria in terms of, you know, it's an enterprise or B2B model that's trying to disrupt an industry, trying to help businesses to operate in a more future-proof way, in a more in a more successful way. The proposition has sort of evolved a little bit now where they were just building the software stack to sell to car manufacturers. And now actually it's swung towards being more of a sort of B2B2C proposition where they want to take a full mobility as a service proposition to the consumer starting in London. So it's definitely a bit of a departure for us, but I think it is an example of something that has massive strategic value long before it's going to have any revenue. And I think they're building tremendous strategic value in what they're doing in terms of the team that they have, the quality of the, the software engineers, the data scientists, the, the AI talent, the multiple PhDs that they have in the company, more than 140, 150 people now, but also the tech that they built. They're already driving in public roads. They're already demoing. The cars are out in the streets of London and they're going to start doing trial journeys early next year. So just in the team of the tech, they're building a lot of value. So just to, to wrap up, maybe um, we just kind of bring it back to founders who are thinking about pitching Notion and, and pitching you in particular and looking to raise capital. What are you excited about investing in over the next couple of years? Uh, what message would you give to founders who want to get your attention? I'm just thinking about SaaS. I've lived SaaS ever since the term was invented in 2002, 2003. You know, it's not like every process, every workflow, every productivity tool has now moved into the cloud, has now delivered through a SaaS model. I'm still really interested in maybe industries which are slightly behind in terms of being early adopters of tech or specific vertical models. I think a lot of the horizontal models in SaaS now are like CRM and accounting and stuff like that have been pretty well saturated in SaaS, but there's there's a lot of more sort of narrow and deep, more specific industries, verticals, specialized workflows where I think SaaS has still not been moved into the cloud and still not been widely adopted. So I think that 
specific industry SaaS, vertical SaaS, I think will continue to be a really, really interesting market in the coming years. That's actually how the traditional software industry evolved. It started out with the big horizontal opportunities and then moved into more specific, deeper, narrow opportunities or more kind of vertical, more industry-based. So I think that that's interesting. I think when you've got a more vertical SaaS proposition, then often you can then layer in payments. You can layer in a third-party marketplace to actually be the operating system for an industry. So we made an investment company called Muse who do that. And I think there's, there's other opportunities there where you can, you can have a larger share of the economics and become that kind of true platform for an industry. So I think that's interesting. But I think also thinking about SaaS combined with the compute power that's now available, combined with the data that's now available and the AI tools, SaaS used to be about replacing software that was delivered on-premise. Whereas I think now you're going to see more and more SaaS opportunities or software-based opportunities, which are not replacing on-premise software, but actually are replacing human manual processes. And I think that now's the time for that because it's not just about the software, it's about the software combined with massive computes, massive amounts of data, generally widely available AI tools, data science and everything else. So, you know, looking for SaaS models, which are actually replacing or more likely in the coming years, augmenting human processes in terms of you know artificial intelligence replacing human intelligence or the two working together i think is is going to be really interesting as well and then like i said the hardware software models where ai is being delivered on the edge and there's more compute power now coming back on the edge so you know five ai we talked about scortex is another company that has video cameras in the manufacturing facility and uses computer vision to recognize defects and products coming off the production line so I think those kind of hardware software models are interesting as well. So there's some of the areas that I'm interested in. Joss, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating conversation. Always a pleasure. Great. Awesome. Thank Thanks you very much.